In our long-term study of Mark's Gospel, uh, we're currently in chapter 3. And so I encourage you, as Francois said, to open there with me, Mark 3. Over the last two months, we've been engaged in a study on the apostles of Christ, those men appointed by Christ to be his authoritative delegates. And I pray that was a fruitful experience for you as we came to understand more about the significance surrounding their appointment, uh, the tasks that Christ assigned for them, and then particularly as we looked at the attributes of each one of those 12 men. Uh, We finished that last week, and today we pick up in verse 20. So if you've got your Bibles open, let's read verses 20 to 35. Well, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. May God bless his word to us today. When the flow of Mark's gospel, we come from seeing men appointed to testify to the gospel, to then coming to see various responses to Jesus' ministry. We see that it's not a very welcoming environment for the gospel. And Jesus' family thinks he's out of his mind and the religious leaders are deliberately spreading lies about him. If we're ever tempted to to think back to the glory days when people were receptive to the gospel, this passage pulls us sharply back to reality. There is much in this passage, and to do it justice, uh, we will look at Jesus' response to the desires of his family uh, next time we meet. And boy, is that a serious call to devotion that we do not want to gloss over. This morning, then, we're going to contend with verses 20 to 30. Uh, next time, Jesus' outline is, is what, a, what a positive response to the gospel looks like. This week is really seeing the negative aspect to it. And it's important to see both sides of that. We want to make sure that our attitude to Christ is on the one hand uh, not reflective of those who oppose him, 
and on the other hand, reflective of what Jesus calls us to in faith. In the section this morning, there are responses of ignorance from Jesus' family, and there are responses of willful repudiation of Jesus from the Jewish leaders. Both of these are bad. One is even worse, as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. We should want to know about these things so that we can avoid the consequences of them, right? Of course we do. And here is a passage that I'm sure many people have struggled with over the years. So my prayer is that in our time this morning, uh, we would be illuminated by the Holy Spirit that we might understand his word and that we might be found faithful to Christ. For some today, coming to this passage, uh, to understand this passage will bring a great relief. For others, it might cause you to seriously reflect on where you are sitting in relation to Christ. God's word always accomplishes its purposes. And we pray for that right now. Uh, This passage also has a parallel account in Matthew 12. And since we're going to be referring to both of these accounts today, you have a copy uh, of them side by side on the back of your news sheet. Today's message is called The Unforgivable Sin. And the passage starts in verses 20 to 21 with what I've called a short-sighted crusade because that's exactly what Jesus' family set out on when they tried to seize him. A short-sighted crusade. We, before we get into verse 20, we should understand that between verse 19, where Jesus finished appointing the apostles... And here in verse 21, when he comes home to Capernaum, uh, a lot has happened in Jesus' ministry that Mark feels no, uh, no need to elaborate on. So if you turn quickly to Luke chapter 6, you'll see what I mean. In Luke chapter 6, verse 16, uh, Jesus finished choosing the apostles and That's the same event that we find here in Mark chapter 3. But then Luke records uh, events through the rest of chapter 6 that you can just uh, flick your eyes across. And then all through chapter 7. And then culminating at the beginning of chapter 8 with a preaching tour of the region of Galilee with the 12 and many other women who followed them. You can see in verse Four of chapter 8, uh, that this leads into the parable of the sower. And then, at the end of that, verse 19, is the discussion about Jesus' family. Now, these events, the, the parable of the sower and Jesus' discussion with his family, they're reversed in the way that Mark tells it, but they happened on the same day. And Luke's language shows that he's simply recalling uh, the discussion concerning Jesus' family. So rather than saying that happened immediately after Jesus told the parable, he just mentioned this is what happened on that day. So there's no contradiction there at all. Well, coming back to Mark's Gospel, Mark 3 again. It's interesting to note the comment by Mark that Jesus and his newly chosen apostles were hemmed in by the crowd so much so that they could not even eat. And this no doubt shows the busyness that came with ministering to the gathering crowd, 
but it also highlights again Jesus' humanity. Uh, eating was a necessary part, it still is a necessary part of humanity. Um, and the busy, busyness of the, the crowd disrupted that for Jesus. And so it's important to note uh, the constant reminders that Jesus is both truly God and truly man that we find in the scriptures. When Jesus gathered the 12 around him, we saw that this was him forming the new Israel uh, around himself. And that was a vivid demonstration of his deity. That was exactly what God did, uh, drawing the 12 tribes of Israel to him around the tabernacle. Well, then we get this comment about Jesus being so busy that, that he and the apostles could not even eat. And it's such a simple, simple way to show that not only is Jesus truly God, but he's also truly man. One person with two natures. Well, the gathering of the crowd draws the attention of two specific groups of people, and the first of which is his own family. We're going to talk more about Jesus' family next week, but... It's important to see here what their response to Jesus is. They think he's out of his mind. Uh, They've heard all that's been going on with Jesus' preaching ministry. They've heard his claims. They've they've heard about all the things that he's been doing, but they they simply don't believe it. They think Jesus is some sort of special case, and uh, they see it their duty to go and rescue Jesus from himself and probably, no doubt, rescue their own family name that they thought Jesus was dragging through the mud. But it's a response out of ignorance. They've not truly investigated things for themselves. They've not taken the time to truly hear what Jesus has said. They've made up their minds that he is out of his mind. And so, ironically, uh, they are the ones who are acting irrationally, not Jesus. Their crusade is very short-sighted indeed. In our day, many people make all sorts of claims about Christ, which leads them to reject him. But they've not made any attempt to read the scriptures and learn what they say about Christ. They build some sort of straw man and knock it down. They might feel assured of their decision, but it's certainly not wise, because one day they will meet Christ in judgment, and they will know and acknowledge that he is indeed Lord. But there is something worse, even worse than ignorance, and that is willful rejection of the truth. So while Jesus' family is ignorant to Jesus' true identity, the religious leaders, on the other hand, are not. And so we move then from a short-sighted crusade to a senseless charge, verse 22. Now to be clear, by senseless I mean illogical and irrational. It's a charge that makes no sense at all. And yet it is made with the full knowledge of what is being done. The scribes were the Jewish lawyers who were experts in the law of Moses and its application. In Matthew's account, he explains that it was the Pharisees who were up in arms, but most of the scribes were Pharisees as well. Matthew also tells us what directly sparked these comments from the religious leaders. It was that Jesus had healed a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. That was, that was the exact spark for this particular dispute. 
Now, Mark hasn't felt the need to mention this specific exorcism because he's already given plenty of testimony to Jesus' ministry of casting out demons throughout the first three chapters. In response to these miraculous displays, the scribes declare that Jesus is doing his work by the power of Satan. Beelzebul is a name that means Lord of the Flies. In the Old Testament, specifically 2 Kings 1, uh, it is Baal, Zebub. Baal being the Canaanite storm god who brought disease and pestilence through flies. By the time we get to the New Testament, Beelzebul has become a reference for Satan himself. Now, for the scribes to lay this charge at Jesus is completely illogical, as Jesus' reply will demonstrate in a moment when he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? But the scribes are not ignorant of what they're doing. They know Jesus has miraculous power. There's no doubt about that. And there are only two choices in the matter as to the source of that power. It's either God or it's Satan. And they know full well that Jesus is not in league with Satan. But rather than submit to Jesus and lose their own authority, they do the only thing they can and charge him with being empowered by Satan. And this is not a once-off bad choice on their part either. Claiming Jesus has a demon became the party line of the Pharisees. When Jesus cast out another demon while ministering in Galilee, we read in Matthew 9 that all the crowds marveled. But then Matthew 9 verse 34, the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. But that theme eventually starts to wind its way into the mouths of the people. If it's said enough time, people will eventually believe it. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, we read in John 7 verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. And so here's the point. The scribes and the Pharisees had decided they needed to discredit Jesus and the only way they could do that was to say that he worked in the power of Satan. They couldn't attack his rationale, so they attacked his reputation. And the people began to buy it. But it started with the religious leaders. They knew full well that Jesus was from God. But to acknowledge that, meant to let go of their own authority, and that was something they were not willing to do. Well, Jesus responds then to this senseless charge with a sensible clarification. Matthew tells us that Jesus knew their thoughts and then called them, which again is another sign of his deity. He knew their thoughts. Mark adds his own editorial comment saying that Jesus said to them in parables. And by mentioning that, Mark is setting up things for for what he'll present in chapter 4, only a few verses away where the majority of that chapter records parables that Jesus taught. And we'll see more of the significance of that in a couple of weeks' time. Well, Jesus begins immediately to dismantle the illogical nature of their claim. And he sets them up with a question... How can Satan cast out Satan? And then he gives three examples. 
He states that a divided kingdom cannot stand, verse 24. A divided house cannot stand, verse 25. And by that, he means a dynasty, not a building. Verse 26, a divided Satan cannot stand. These examples show the irrationality of the scribes' claims. Now, let me just point out a couple of things so that we see Jesus' initial question within the wider biblical framework. Firstly, when Jesus asks, how can Satan cast out Satan? We need to understand that he is saying this in direct relation to what the scribes are witnessing in Jesus' own ministry. From the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he's been causing utter devastation to Satan's kingdom. So it cannot be that Jesus is empowered by Satan. Satan would not be so willing and eager to take that many actual hits against himself. Now, that does not mean, however, that Satan would not seek in other ways to give the impression that he was being beaten in order to deceive more people. What do I mean by that? Well, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul defends his apostleship against the false apostles who've come into the church at Corinth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 14, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it may be of benefit to Satan's evil schemes that he would set it up, that that a particular minister or a particular ministry was seen to be making great headway against Satan. But in that sense, it would all be a charade. Whatever impression that Satan was taking hits would be just that. An impression, but not reality. And the second thing we should understand is that the nature of Satan and his kingdom does not mean that Satan's kingdom is always unified. For starters, Satan is neither omnipresent nor is he omniscient. He's not omnipresent like God is, right? Uh, He's not in all places at all times. Because Satan is a creature, he is confined to space and time. And Satan is also not omniscient, which means he does not know all things, past, present, future, like God does. And the combination of these two extraordinary limitations means that things are going to happen in his kingdom that don't always go the way he plans. I mean, he orchestrated Christ's death, not knowing that this would be his own demise didn't see that one coming. Moreover, Satan commands a kingdom of darkness and his system is utterly chaotic. So at times it's going to act in very chaotic and irrational ways. You just turn on the news. Parts of his kingdom seeking to destroy other parts of his kingdom. But again, this is different to the kind of systematic attack that Jesus was bringing to his doorstep. So how can Satan cast out Satan with the efficiency and scope that Jesus has been doing? For the scribes to even make that suggestion that Christ is empowered by Satan is to deliberately fly in the face of reality. Moving on. 
If we note in Matthew 12, Jesus then goes on to show not merely the illogical nature of the scribes' claims, but the hypocrisy that stands behind it. Matthew 12, verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Jesus points out that while the scribes and the Pharisees are laying charges against him of being in league with Satan, they have at the same time men among their own number who were actively pursuing and claiming publicly that they were casting out demons. So why is that somehow okay? But they were getting all uptight with Jesus. Now Jesus is not making any affirmation that the men of the Pharisees were succeeding but he's just simply calling them to consistency. Why is one okay and not the other? Jesus says to them, therefore they will be your judges. The actions of their own people are judging the scribes and Pharisees to be hypocrites, exposing them of the guilt of hypocrisy. Continuing in Matthew 12, Jesus then renders a verdict to them about his own actions. If it's not by the power of Satan that Jesus casts out demons and does other miraculous works, then there's only one other conclusion. Verse 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If it's not by Satan, then it must be by the Spirit of God. There are no two greater powers short A very long way short, but short nonetheless of the triune God, is Satan. And if Satan is not divided against himself, then it must be an even higher power casting out demons. And there is only one higher power, God. So if Jesus is casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then they must recognise that God's kingdom, that is God's power and authority and rule, is what they are witnessing. There's no other way to explain the power Jesus is exhibiting other than it being from the Spirit of God. Coming back to Mark's account, we see Jesus delivering one more parable that drives his point home. Mark 3, verse 27, Jesus declared, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What do all these things represent? The strong man is Satan. And Jesus is the one who binds the strong man. The house represents Satan's kingdom, which is this world as it stands in defiance of God. And the goods that Jesus plunders are the demons that Jesus casts out and the souls that Jesus delivers from bondage to sin, taking them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's you and me, folks. That's you and me. Jesus declared to the scribes that he is stronger than the strong man. And they know that the only one stronger than the strong man is God. Jesus' work is not empowered by Satan, but by the Spirit of God. In Matthew 12, verse 30, Jesus lays down an ultimatum. When he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. He's making clear there is no middle ground. 
There is no neutral ground. If he is demonstrating his miraculous authority, then he is either from Satan or from God. It can't be both and it can't be neither. He's either one or the other. And it's a choice that he puts starkly before them. And it's a choice he puts before each one of us. Jesus is not just a nice guy who did some nice things that we can pick and choose what we listen to. He displayed his power. And that power could only have come from one of two places. And he's already made clear that it could not have been from Satan because Jesus was using his power to defeat Satan. And that leaves only one other option. When you come to understand the sensible clarification from Jesus, you move out of a state of ignorance. You understand the truth. And the question is what you will then do with the truth. Will you believe it or will you stand against it? And that choice is before each one of us. But let's be clear what happens if we consciously repudiate the truth about Jesus Christ. That is what the scribes chose. They heard the truth and they raged against it. So Jesus shows the serious consequence of that choice. So from a sensible clarification, Jesus now lays out a serious consequence. Mark three twenty-eight to 30. Now I want you to notice the dramatic contrast that Jesus establishes between sin that can be forgiven and sin that cannot be forgiven. How much sin can be forgiven? All sins except one all sins except one that is a dramatic contrast now before getting to that one exception let's explore for a moment the significance of all other sins being able to be forgiven in romans 3 the apostle paul explains this glorious truth saying in Verses 23 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. By God's grace alone, he enables sinners to come to faith in Christ Jesus where their sins are atoned for and the wrath of God is propitiated. That is, it is appeased. And why would God do such a thing? Because he has a deep willingness to forgive. A deep desire to forgive. Listen to what God said to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The Lord has a desire to forgive all who come to him in repentance and plead for his mercy. And it's through the atoning work of Christ that their sins are dealt with so that God can be just and the one who justifies. There are no sins beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. Just look at Matthew 12, 
verse 32, where Jesus also adds, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. On the cross, people were hurling abuse at Jesus. But listen to his words recorded in Luke 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Many of these same people made up the crowd at Pentecost when by the grace of God they were led to repentance and faith in response to Peter's preaching. Do you see the extraordinary nature of Jesus' comment in Mark 3.28? It's just truly staggering. But it only serves to make the comparative statement from Jesus stand out even more. All sins can be forgiven with one singular exception. Just feel the weight of that. Every sin can be forgiven when a repentant soul comes before the mercy of God. But there is one sin that cannot be forgiven. Mark 3.29 But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Blasphemy literally means being slow to call something good that is really good and slow to call something bad that is really bad. To blaspheme is to to reverse spiritual and moral realities. It's to switch right for wrong and wrong for right. So what constitutes blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? We'll look at Mark 3 verse 30 because Mark tells us. They were saying he has an unclean spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to equate the work of the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus Christ to the work of Satan. It's to look at everything Jesus is and to say that it is from Satan and not from God. Now that's utterly astounding because the Holy Spirit was active in Jesus' life at every stage, at his birth, his baptism, his temptation, his ministry, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. When Jesus made this declaration, he was speaking to people who were witnessing firsthand all that he was doing. But instead of acknowledging the source of his authority, they willfully and deliberately and callously rejected him. Now this is very different from rejecting Christ out of ignorance. I mean, Jesus' own brothers were acting in ignorance and some of them became great leaders in the church. And the people Jesus was addressing, they knew the truth, but they instead declared Jesus was of the devil. It's the unforgivable sin because the person who commits it has understood clearly the truth about Jesus and has nevertheless chosen to reject him and call him evil. It's unforgivable because they've seen the light and chosen to stay in the darkness in sin and unrepentance. Now, can people commit this sin today? I think they can. But it would be something terribly rare. Again, this is not simply a sin of ignorance. It is a willful repudiation of Christ in response to understanding the truth of the gospel clearly. There are many today who are staunch attackers of Christianity, abusive and angry. Yet when you listen to their critiques of Christianity, they've rarely understood the gospel at all. 
They're raging at Christ to be sure, but they haven't understood the first thing about the Bible's teaching. They're still in ignorance. And that was the same place each one of us was in before God graciously opened our eyes to know the truth, to love the truth, to live for the truth. Now to be sure, if people fail to repent and uh, trust in Christ, they will still end up in hell, just the same. But this sin of ignorance is different to knowing Christ is true and instead calling him evil. Can Christians commit this sin? Absolutely not. And if you've ever felt guilty that you've committed it, let me reassure you that the simple act of worrying over it proves you haven't. It shows that your conscience has not been seared and you care about your sin before God. Now, I think the scriptures say two more things about this that I want us to explore briefly this morning. So, can you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6? In Hebrews chapter 6, the writer is calling the believers to mature in their faith. He wants to be able to teach them about the deeper truths of God. But all they want to do is hear the basics again and again. He says in verse 1, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He says this because at the end of chapter 5, he expressed his sadness and frustration that the people should have by now been equipped as teachers But they did not want to move beyond the basics. They should have been on solid food. But all they could take in, because all they wanted to take in, was milk. Now John 3.16 is the glorious truth at the heart of Christianity. But God did not limit his revelation to simply one verse. We don't have the holy business card. We have the holy Bible. 66 books of God's truth. But friends, listen, the writer is not rebuking them because he wants to be able to teach what he wants to be able to teach and they're not keeping up. Now the reason he's calling them to account on this is that he knows the disaster that awaits them if they fail to grow in maturity. As one commentator explains, the readers cannot and must not remain in their infantile state. They will either go forward to maturity or fall into apostasy. There's no treading water here. It's either forward or backwards. Apostasy means to defect or revolt. What he's saying is if they turn their back on Christ then they cannot be called again to repentance. Look down at verses 4 to 6. He says this, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. The writer is giving them a decisive wake-up call. If they don't seek to grow to maturity, they will stagnate 
and fall away. And if that happens, they will not return to taste the blessings of God again. Because in their repudiation of Christ, they will have effectively crucified Christ once again. But can believers actually fall away? No. Believers are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And in time, God effectually calls them to faith. And he then maintains them in their faith until they see Christ and are glorified in spirit and body. If someone falls away from the faith, it's a sign that they were never truly saved to begin with. But if believers can't fall away, then what is the point of the warnings? Well, just as road signs are necessary to keep us safe while driving, so these warnings are given to keep believers in the faith. A healthy fear is one of the ways in which God enables his people to persevere to the end. So true believers could never crucify Christ again, which I think is equivalent to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But the writer to the Hebrews calls them to grow to maturity as the means of preventing that from ever happening. There's one final passage to look at, so turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. One John chapter five, we read this in verse sixteen. Okay. One John five sixteen. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. John tells us there is a sin that does not lead to death, but there is one sin that does lead to death. Now, given John's language throughout the rest of his letter, he's not talking about physical death here. He's talking about spiritual death. And given what he also says in the letter about those who fall away from the faith, how they show they were never saved in the first place, seems clear that the sin that leads to death is not something a true believer can commit. What then is the sin that leads to death? Well, it's apostasy. It's a willful repudiation of the truth of Jesus Christ. It's to understand the truth of Christ, of the gospel, of the spirit of God at work in his life, and to reject it as wrong. And I think, again, it's equivalent to Jesus calling blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. When John says, I do not say that one should pray for that, he's telling us that his priority at that point is not on dealing with sins that lead to death. Sorry, sin that leads to death, but on sins that do not lead to death. His focus was the sanctification of those in the believing community, not on those who had already chosen to exclude themselves. Prayer will not affect someone who's committed the sin that leads to death. But in our finite understanding, we truly have no idea whether in their heart of hearts someone has committed the sin that leads to death, whether they have blasphemed the Spirit and are guilty of eternal sin. We don't fully know that, what's going on in someone's heart. 
So we are to be ever vigilant in praying that the Spirit of God would convict the hearts of the lost and bring them to repentance and faith in Christ. Moreover, whenever we see believers sinning, we are to pray. Pray with all our might for them to repent. Because this is another way in which believers can never commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let me bring us back to the focus of our passage today as we draw things to a conclusion. Confronted with the truth of Jesus, we've seen his family standing in ignorance and we've seen the religious leaders standing in willful defiance. The unforgivable sin is to understand the truth of Christ and to reject it. More than that, to call it evil. It's the epitome of what God thundered through the prophet Isaiah. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to look at all that Jesus is and to call it the work of Satan. It's the Spirit that testifies to Christ. So to deny his testimony is to blaspheme against him and to be guilty of an eternal sin. That is a sin that leads to death. But it's not a sin that a true believer can commit. But believers should heed the warning passages of Scripture to repent of any sin found in their lives, to avoid apostasy by growing to maturity in their faith in Christ. However, if you're here today and you have not trusted in Christ Jesus as the Lord and Saviour, if you've not called out to God to have mercy on your sin, I pray that you would hear the seriousness of the Scriptures. Do not let your heart become so hardened that you cut yourself off eternally from the hope of forgiveness. If you're here today, well then that certainly isn't the case just yet. If you were at that point, you wouldn't care. You'd be out playing golf. But listen to Jesus' words again. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Remember that God's desire is to grant forgiveness. So come to Jesus in repentance. Come to Jesus and experience the forgiveness of your sin. Come to Jesus and know what it is to experience the love of God and to be called his child. The one unforgivable sin stands out in great starkness because it is compared to the immensity of forgiveness that the creator of heaven and earth is willing to extend to all, all who humble themselves before him and trust in his son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words that we've been able to look at today. We pray that your spirit would enable us to understand these truly and clearly. And we pray, Father, that your grace would be at work in our hearts, opening our ears, our minds, our eyes, to see how far short of your glory we've fallen, how much in need of a saviour we are, and to have our eyes affixed on the one and only who can save us from our sins and lead us to glory. Help us to trust in your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.